Boom. Boom. Rollin'. Rollin'. Keep rolling, rolling, rolling. It's rolling in the Zoom. Uh, I, I feel like we should talk about the fire in the Bronx because it just happened and it's really bad. Yeah, sure. I don't know. I have anything really to say about it, but we can mention it. Adams yeah. looks really, really bad. You think he's going to yeah. be uh, a really terrible mayor and he's going to make de Blasio look a lot better in comparison. I didn't think it was possible to make you know de Blasio look good, but Eric Adams just right out the gate. Oh, my God. He's like... A lot of bad qualities to that guy. He's like yeah. a weird. He's an asshole, and he's a weird asshole. Yep. He's a he's a crank. He's oh an asshole God. and a crank. He's like a he's like I don't know. He's Blue Maga. He's uh, that conservative wing of the Democratic Party that has very much triumphed in recent times. The, Isn't he kind of like his own thing though? Well, I, the I don't feel like about he, him were like he's very ambiguous politically. Um, sometimes he's a populist, sometimes he's a conservative. So I, I think there is some hope that he would be an asshole for the people, but that mm. just clearly is not going to happen. No. Didn't he just appoint his brother to something like yeah. deputy police commissioner or something? Yeah. And his, wow. um, and like the, the story with the Bronx, I haven't really looked into it, but what people are saying on Twitter at least is that the landlord of this building, uh, had tons of violations for not providing heat and the fire yeah. was caused by a space heater and Ugh. this landlord is on Eric Adams transition team. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, so I have a whole I I mean I didn't research it that much, but I researched it a little bit. So maybe we start are we are we potting? Yeah. We're potting. I feel we're like already we're potting. potting already. All yeah. right. So yeah, welcome to the Antifada. Um we're talking about a tragic fire that happened in the Bronx earlier this week at a high-rise apartment complex that was mostly housing low-income people. So uh, the fire has killed at least 19 people so far, including nine children with many more injured and in the hospital. Um, It was apparently started by a space heater, which, as you probably know, is something that people use when their building is not being sufficiently heated or if there are broken windows that aren't being fixed. But um, as Andy noted, the building had uh, 174 violations as of the fire, including a number of complaints about having no heat. So that makes the landlord look pretty fucking guilty. And the landlord, uh, his name is Rick Gropper, and he is on Eric Adams' transition team in charge of housing. Which That's is our just, mayor. Just great. Great to hear. You love to hear it. Um, Also, according to some news reports, the building lacked the uh, legally mandated self-closing apartment doors that would have helped to stop the spread of the fire and the smoke. So that should shed some light on why Eric Adams was in his press conference going on and on about how we need to teach kids to close the doors, teach people to Ah. close the doors because that's for safety. Yeah, he's blaming it on the people, the people who died in the fire. Real classy, dude. so, Holy shit. Yeah. What a what an absolute disaster. I mean, you guys remember a few years back, it was when Corbin was still a political item before he kind of slinked back to the back bench. But there was that horrific uh, Grenfell fire in uh, yeah. in in London. 
And Theresa May was prime minister at that point, and there was a lot of talk about, oh, well, surely they'll like, you know, revamp the housing code so this never happens again. And my understanding is, of it is that nothing really fundamentally changed at all. I'm not sure coming out of this, uh, especially with Eric Adams and a city council in New York, like completely beholden to um, like real estate and development interests, if much is going to happen whatsoever. Well, uh, city council is pretty much your only hope. And that is why DSA chose to focus on city council races this time around and not endorse anyone on that ship of fools running for mayor. Um, Oh, but what else did I find? The company that owns the building has 123 other buildings, mostly in low-income neighborhoods. So these people are slumlords. This is, we've heard this before. Literal slumlords. Yeah, we've heard this before. Tell us all this time. Um, You know, they take the Section 8 money and they don't do anything with it. Um, And many of the tenants who lost their homes were indeed using Section 8 housing vouchers. And these vouchers have a lot of rules and a lot of hoops you have to jump through, uh, one of which is they don't transfer to other buildings. So these people are definitely homeless now. Um, it, this, is, this is class war. It's extermination. It's extermination of the poor. And because class is so racialized, it's ethnic cleansing. So, you know, people want to talk about, oh, the left is so violent. Um, this is the violence that we're responding to. Always. There's the everyday violence, and then there's just the slow violence of, um, of poverty and decay in capitalist society. I mean, you're a 70s guy, Sean. Does this sound familiar to you, any of this? Oh, you mean like with uh, landlords burning their apartment buildings down in the Bronx oh, and shit? Yeah, or, the Bronx is burning? Or just like general disinvestment causing massive amounts of human suffering. Oh, yeah. No, that's that's interesting. Oh, yeah, I hadn't thought of that before. But yeah, that, that that there's kind of like a two a double tract happening right now because we all know the like billions upon billions of dollars that have gone into new fancy luxury real estate in, play, in New York, but also in places like uh, Los Angeles, London, Paris, you know, Budapest, like all over the world. So there's like this incredible investment in the the high end, the top end of the market, but then apparently this huge disinvestment that's happening at the bottom. So it's really a tale of two cities. Yeah. So um, I'm looking around for some, you know, vetted funds that you can donate to. I'm not going to tell people to donate to the Red Cross on this podcast for obvious reasons. But um, wait, what did the Red Cross do? Uh, they got problems. They got problems. They got okay. problems. Um, but Red Cross canceled. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's a. Uh, Late pass on that, Sean. But uh, oh, sorry, <laughs> I'm not up on my charity. I don't that's, know. That's 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 quite all right. Um, I'm going to put a link. Red Cross with the Red Cross. Ah, uh-huh. I would like to synthesize the Red Cross with the Black Cross. That's my politics. Or what about the Red and Black Cross? That's it. Like that's it. That sounds communists. Anarcho Red Cross. Yeah. The red, yeah. like the red army. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to put a link to what, as far as I can tell, looks like a good uh, fund for people doing mutual aid to help the victims of the fire. Very good. Thank you for that. It's really sad. Um, so how do I transition out of that? I don't know. Um, <laughs> There's another dumpster fire happening down oh. in Washington, D.C. Oh, Am I right? Oh, geez. Yeah. Um, they. Thanks for doing that so I didn't have to. Sorry, um, I, I had to put on my most ironic <laughs> uh, ironic voice there to make it seem like I wasn't just doing a smooth transition. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, you didn't. Good job. Uh, 
So we are perhaps a bit belatedly going to commemorate those notorious, unforgettable events that happened about a year ago on January 6th. Hashtag never forget. (laughs) Um, I'm not talking about... What am I not talking about? I don't know. I'm, uh, I'm talking about the thing. The thing. The Bay of Chuds. The, the insurrection. The, the coup. insurrection, if you will. It goes by many names. The moment when our democracy was on the precipice. Yeah, so... The MAGA nation <laughs> almost overthrew our precious republic. So I figure maybe, as we often do with... Uh, historical episodes maybe start by all of us talking a little bit about where we were and what we were doing on that fateful day uh i was in new york city and i was watching it all unfold unfold like glued to the edge of my seat and like half laughing half in shock that something like this was actually happening in the united states yeah, I, w- yeah. I was watching it on uh, on a stream too because I I knew for the weeks coming up that this was supposed to be the day. Like all of the QAnon people uh, were were saying like like D- like J six. That's the day you got to be in DC. And um, I found some accounts starting to say we are the storm, which was like kind of an interesting thing mm. for QAnon because uh, previously throughout the Trump administration it had all been about sitting back and watching. Um, like a movie, what was happening, everything unfolding. There was never any. Uh, they're they're specifically saying like, don't do anything. That's what leftists do. That's what the elites want yeah. you to do. But now it was always the the storm is coming, right? There was this passive like uh, enjoyment of watching the storm come. It was supposed to be like deep state actors, right, and like white hats or whatever. Right. There wasn't. This is where you're saying a transition to like we are the storm. And the storm, of course, was going to be this military dictatorship and like this cleansing of uh, the deep state and the liberals. And some people even believe that like all the Democrats would just be killed or whatever. Um, so it was this horrific fascist fantasy but at least the the QAnon mindset was like don't actually do anything but some some people were saying like now Trump is telling us you actually have to do stuff he was being pretty overt on Twitter that you had to come to DC and take action he said something about like it's going to be wild so I was uh anticipating something um and I watched his speech and then I was just like looking around on Twitter for streams of the march and not too long after the speech, I found one from the pr- the front lines of the Capitol where um, not not everyone, but quite a few uh, of the people in the front were were fist fighting the Capitol police mm-hmm. uh, trying to get make their way in. And, um, uh, you know, the police were put the police were not just letting them in like some people think uh, not yet. At least they were fighting back. They're trying to hold the line. Um, but there was a lot of chaos. There's a lot of people fighting them. And eventually they, they fought their way in. And, uh, you know, uh, live streaming is an interesting thing because you um, really don't have to be there to get a pretty good sense of how it was uh, in, yeah. in terms of, like, who was fighting, uh, the reaction of the crowd to the fighting. So uh, probably later on we'll talk about the conspiracy theories about how it was Antifa or about how it was all a plan or whatever or it was the feds. It was clearly, like, hundreds or and thousands of like really pissed off maga people physically fighting their way in and it was yeah. really something to see um 
I wasn't too worried about like them actually seizing power because they did like what you get in there. What are you gonna do? You know, like right. they could have. It's just a building. They really. could have killed some people, but uh, they don't have any mechanism or like plans for seizing power. I guess if they had done the same to state houses all across the country, maybe you're talking then about an insurrection. But this was just kind of like uh, you know a temper tantrum, and they they in a way they got it out of their systems. Well, they took a look at the left and they were like, hey, direct action gets the goods. Uh, <laughs> I also saw a pretty funny tweet from Beef Country. Uh, or I guess they're not Beef Country anymore. They're just Kitty and Gabby from the Final Girls pod. Oh, but uh, Beef Country was such a great name. It, it was. All right. Rest in power, Beef Country. Um, but anyway, yeah, they, they tweeted that Martin Luther King quote, a riot is the language of the unheard. I thought Oof. that was uh, pretty funny. I don't know. Uh, what was I doing? I was on the majority report, uh, and it started, like, the news report started during the broadcast. It was one of those things. And I was, like, messaging Sam, like, hey, hey, look, this this thing's happening. It's pretty crazy. The fuck is happening here? Uh, and then, you know, in the days to come... There was I, I I just made everybody mad at me who was around me at the majority report. Like, you no way. It, it was, what happened? It was one of those things where like, I, you know, I read the room, Jamie. But I did read the room and I just didn't care because they were all like, oh, no, my democracy. Oh, no. The AOC was scared. And I just I was just missing Michael Brooks a lot in that mm. moment because I know he would have seen the humor in it. And the absurdity uh, in a similar way to how I did while still having like a very humanistic take on, uh, you know, the problems in our society that it revealed. So that was, uh, you know, personally a bummer moment for me, Um, a a bummer moment for everyone, really. Like the, the whole thing, like it was funny. All right. It was funny. It was, it was funny. objectively funny, and just like was... some dingbat asked the other day. Do you think Trump was a funny president? Of course he was. Oh, objectively, that is funny. an argument we also had on the majority report. Funnily enough, <laughs> I think it's still happening. I think someone tweeted about it and tagged me like the other day, and I'm like, leave me alone. I do not work there anymore. <laughs> um, but like, yeah, there's all these all these stupid arguments between the people who are like, oh, it was really funny, and the people who are like, oh no, it wasn't funny. It was bad. Like. Stuff could be funny and bad. Like a lot of stuff is funny because it's bad. Like am I uh, am I taking crazy pills or what? No, no, not at all. I mean, like to continue on, I guess what I was feeling on the on the day, I never got the sense that there was going to be an overthrow. I didn't feel like the reins of power were going to end up back in Trump's hands at the end. Because like Andy was saying, it's like you can't reify the state and imagine that it exists like in a building, right? It's a series of relationships and power and armed force and all that stuff. But what I was doing while watching it was, as you said, laughing. I mean, the fucking QAnon shaman up there in Nancy Pelosi's seat, uh, the guy carrying the fucking podium away. Um, so good. Also, all like the great like riot porn that you got out of, out of that day was interesting to watch. But immediately, and maybe this is just like my tendency, is um, I kind of tried to step back from it. I had the same feeling that I had when um, uh, they burnt down the, uh, the police station in uh, Minneapolis, where I said to myself, We won. This 
<laughs> well, as it turns out, not so much. But what what it was, yes, there was a, a feeling of elation then, and maybe one of like le- like more dread this time, I guess. But no, like I had the sense that that uh, within its context, like a Rubicon had been crossed. Like we haven't lived in our in our lifetimes and probably our parents' lifetimes to see a uh, police precinct burned down. You know, uh, and also too in the same year, then we have um, this like attempted this riot that uh, that does for for all the things that it didn't do. It did cause a hell of a lot of ruckus, and it did uh, see people impregnate what's supposed to be a very impregnatable, um, non impregnatable <laughs> institution, which is the seat of power. So <clears throat> I was reaching for the context right away. And it just, I guess I was sitting there like, wow, may you be blessed to live in interesting times. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you can abstract away <clears throat> from the specific politics of it, events like this really do have sort of a sort of a visceral thrill, like someone tore a hole in reality. You yeah. know, like I'll say the same thing about the. JFK assassination not that I was happy that JFK got assassinated but just like oh wow fuck like I didn't know that could happen yeah. uh, I think 9-11 <coughs> was a similar thing obviously again it wasn't a good thing a lot of people died um, but it was like well, holy fucking shit you're watching something historical happen and we have the opportunity these days to often see that in real time which is pretty incredible um there's like the actual event itself, which politically I was saying to myself, this probably isn't going to mean that all that much. But then what, like what that actually meant, what it meant for the state of this country, what it meant for politics, what it meant for like the future of the American empire. That's what immediately, you know, entered my mind. And I thought, because it was such a, um, a, like a stupendous and uh, aberrant act uh, that there was going to be maybe some fundamental change, but within hours of uh, watching the news coverage of it and all the responses from the Democrats or the Republicans, I was like, no, no, this is going to get recuperated exactly back into. So I wrote this on, on January 6th. There's a tweet from me. I say, it's obvious now, just several hours later, that this whole spectacle will be recuperated back into partisan American politics with no reflection on the context of it, this acute and ongoing crisis, or the momentous social forces at work tearing this country apart, this dumb country apart. And I, th- I believe that held up really, really well, because what it, gets, it got turned into is like bad, orange man bad, uh, or like antifas again. There was no actually like understanding how it is that like this country got to the point where these two things are happening in one year, if that makes sense, economically and, and politically and everything. But would you have predicted, though, that that's a good tweet, I agree, but would you have predicted that the Democrats were going to throw a ceremony one year later <laughs> with a song performed remotely by the cast of Hamilton? Yes, that's exactly what I was saying in that fucking tweet. Recuperated right back into like, partisan American politics and the Democrats doing exactly what they do best, which is milk toast, cringe, fucking like cultural representations of how we're supposed to feel as one great nation under God. That's exactly what I meant, actually. I didn't know it was going to be Hamilton specifically, but yeah. Like that seems like something that Felix Biederman made up to make fun of them, but it's real. I mean, it's just them phoning it in. Like what else would you... You expect is like oh the democrats did a hamilton thing it's Ooh. it just seems like they're out of ideas it's just like you know people are tweeting about it all day like like upset about it like why like what do you want them to do you know 
<laughs> like, I think J6 should have proven that what's going on in there doesn't really matter. What actually matters was the way that people work together to get in, which I don't think they're good people. I don't think their cause was good, but, like, good for them for, like, figuring out what you actually <laughs> got to do if you want to assert your politics. Because mm. Trump's mm. not going to do it for you. Um, and uh, it was certainly historical. Like, it's, um, it was an incredible thing to watch. And it's an incredible thing to have occurred, but uh, it's much smaller than what happens, you know, earlier in 2020, even in D.C. Yes. Like in D.C., yeah. there was a mob of people who breached the White House gates. I don't know if the crowd was bigger, but they were certainly ready to fight. And Trump had to go into a underground bunker. So, uh, like, uh, we should give ourselves some credit that, you know, that's that was more our side. And um their, when their side gets really fired up and believes a coup had just taken place, all they can do is, uh, you know, demand a free tour of the Capitol so they could talk to its manager. <laughs> Fair enough. Can you say what exactly you're referring to for people who may not be oh, aware? Oh, yeah, yeah. During the George Floyd uprising, there was like days of riots all over the country and in, in Washington, D.C. as well. Uh, they... They uh, massed out front of the White House for days on end, and, and some people got through the gates, and Trump had to go into, like, a safe room. And uh, apparently some people burnt down the church that uh, the president goes to across the street from the White House. Oof. <laughs> oh, yeah. That did happen. Hell, yeah. Well, that reminds me of a question that I put lower on the sheet, which is, uh, like, there's a common narrative out there, right, that the left— and or people of color, right, because these are often overlapping categories in people's minds, um, would never, could never do anything like that because we would all just be massacred immediately. And I don't know if that's necessarily true. Yeah, I mean, I, I think what you saw was that, um, you know, Mao always famously said that the American empire is a paper tiger. I mean, we saw that at least in that instance. And one of the things that the Democrats did do was put billions of dollars more into the hands of the, the D.C. Capitol cops. But what it did show is that given enough people, given enough like um, fervor and passion uh, and given a complacent uh, government security force that uh, you actually can breach the impregnable. Yeah, well, OK, I have some reasons why we maybe wouldn't take up a tactic like that and there are the obvious ones you know the left takes political violence a lot more seriously than the right does the left you know doesn't want everybody to die uh they don't think it was going to work but like i'd say apart from those things because those things are almost like i don't know aphorisms at this point which are debatable uh what we've been talking about already uh the, this this focus on the state and specifically the halls of power i think is a little wrong-headed on the part of the left or whoever or whoever is doing it right um because we know from being good materialists that true power resides also at the point of production right like the workers who make all the stuff uh given the opportunity could take over the baking of the stuff, and that's how we're going to overthrow capitalism. Uh, secondarily, you know, uh, the point of sales, let's say, 
as as opposed to the point of production is also something that I think has great potential that we've talked about a lot on this show. The ability to get stuff without paying for it, right? Defying the basic logic of capitalism. I think that's a big part of why I'm interested in the looting and the rioting and the more, shall we say, violent or militant aspects of the George Floyd uprising. I had a, a I had a, a another take. I'm reading this now. I'm sorry to be doing this on air, but um, <clears throat> one of the things that I was mistaken about in terms of the the political violence that we saw on, on that day, because like a, again, one of the the contexts of of both the George Floyd uprising and the the Jan Six thing was that uh, political violence really came to the fore in a way that it hadn't in a really long long time in America, and uh, I said on January sixth as well, and this was wrong. Yeah, I'll, 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 I'll eat that one. The MAGA movement had until today always run up against an imp- internal barrier to its activity, was its vener- which was its veneration of law enforcement and the flag. This is not a coup or a revolution, but it is the populist right overflowing the ideological bounds that it set up for itself. This actually is wrong, and it brings up an important uh, reason why this also wasn't a coup, was that they did this like – so they did this incredibly base thing on January 6th, right? They went in like en masse. They beat the shit out of the cops. They broke into the halls of power. They caused a ruckus. They like stole laptops from Congress people. They like smashed things up or whatever. Like it seemed objectively like they were like, fuck it. Law enforcement veneration of the flag doesn't matter anymore. We're putting Trump into power. But within two or three days, not even two or three hours of the event, and this gets into the conspiracy stuff you guys were talking about, uh, all of a sudden you started to see all the popular figures on the right and even a lot of the people who were there at Jan 6 start to pull back from that and say like, no, it wasn't us. It was provocateurs. No, we would never do that. It was Antifa. It wasn't nearly like like they saw that barrier that they ran up against, that ideological barrier, and they like retreated from it. Well, some of them did. I'm also some seeing a did. link to Matt Gates here who's yeah. sitting next to Marjorie Taylor Greene on some Fox News broadcast or whatever saying, hey, it's good that that happened and we're going to do it again. No, they said it was Antifa. Wait, what? But yeah, Gates was like the first guy to say Antifa did it. Um Yeah, I I made a similar I made a similarly wrong uh take where it's it's wrong so far. I think it'll be right one day, but I predicted J6 would just become like a patriotic conservative holiday. And there'd be like flags of Ashley Babbitt flying all over the country, like the POWMIA flag. And um, it looked like that could have happened because Trump started talking about Ashley Babbitt as a martyr and saying, uh, like, uh, you know, getting behind this kind of movement to like uh, investigate how or why she was killed. But then on J6 this year, weirdly, he canceled his press conference and he released this statement saying, that oh the the liberals can have J six like I don't even care about it we're moving on so uh, I Total guess Chad. I guess like his and and uh, similarly you've got Tucker Carlson you know making an issue of it but their their position is that the feds instigated it and uh, that seems to be the official line even of like the type of people who were there <laughs> even like the Proud Boys who like really like uh, uh, tactically uh, pushed the whole thing forward are probably spreading these conspiracy theories that. Antifa was doing it, even though they're saying that they're Antifa. Um, but that's just how right. these people's brains work. Well, like they're, well, they're okay. willing to well, hold on in real time. I don't. Uh, I also want to emphasize that I wasn't making that up just now. Uh, I don't know if you've seen this clip, Andy. Uh, I guess maybe Sean put it on here. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, uh, I didn't watch the whole thing. He but. said, "We're this is from uh, this is from January 6, 2022. And he said, quote, we're ashamed of nothing. We're proud of the work we did on January 6th. And we're actually going to walk the grounds that patriotic Americans walked from the White House to the Capitol. Yeah, he's, he's talking about he's talking. He, it's the this is their narrative. Their narrative is there is this mass protest to support Trump, and there is the uh, people in Congress who were trying to defend uh, or, or trying to defend Trump and like question the election. And then there were were Feds and Antifa who instigated violence. So that's that's their narrative is, is like we we were peaceful protesters uh, defending democracy. And uh, the deep state uh, tarred us with a, 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 you know, uh, made us look bad. Well, don't you think he's saying it with a little bit of a winky face, though? Because, like, he can't come out and say exactly that. But I feel like I don't think he wants people storming the Capitol. I don't think he wants that. He's a coward. He doesn't want people storming the Capitol. I, well, I think that do it. I think I think she's right, though. I think that he's trying to have it both ways. I mean, he's saying, like, we want more peaceful protests. We want uh, patriots to come back and stand up for the Constitution. But he's also like in a winky sort of way being like also like what happened was fine. The other. So for the people who are more invested in that than the other thing, because this is all just like the, the elite media discourse and the sort of interviews you get with some people. I think, you know, by and large, the, the, the crazy Trump MAGA people, the right wingers, I think some of them thought it was based and they want to do it again. It's just that they're a minority. They're like uh, Boogaloo boys or they're whatever fucking proud boys. Well, if you want to look at some hard data, because I know we're all about polls here at the Antifada. Um, I got some polling information from the Hill, friend of the show. Um, August institution of the left. Yeah. So let's see. Oh, yeah. So Republican voters, according to these, this poll, are divided about 50-50 as to whether the insurrection threatens democracy or not. So half of them think it did and half of them think it didn't or, you know, even strengthened democracy. Um, Republicans are also divided on how they view the committee to investigate it. And Trump is pulled to be the front runner for the 2024 nomination if he wants it. Um, support for political violence against the government has also gone up uh, by about 100 percent. Oh, geez, since, we got to get that number down since uh, <laughs> since 10 years ago. Well, it's not as good as we'd like it to be because most of those people are Republicans. I'm thinking of the meme in my head where he's like, those are, ro- those are rookie numbers in this racket. You got to get those numbers up. Right. Like, again, like this whole thing, it's a, it's a little bit frustrating for, you know, pro-revolutionary folks like us because, yeah, uh, one in three Americans now think that violence against the government can be justified under certain circumstances, which is absolutely true. Uh, and it's a 100% increase from when people were polled on the same question 10 years ago. However, it is vastly, vastly weighted towards Republicans and, interestingly enough, independents because, like, who knows who the fuck those people are? Hey, uh, they could be. They Like, I'm not even kidding. Some of them could be communists. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say they obviously didn't poll any communists because there aren't enough of us to matter. But, um, <laughs> yeah. It's probably true, but maybe some independents. Who the fuck knows? These these weren't uh, these weren't likely voters either. They were they were um, 
they were just citizens? Is, is that what the polling says? Ah, oh, geez. Now I got to go to my primary source. I'm looking at your primary source right here. It looks to, looks to be just like Americans, oh, which well. is interesting, right? Because if you're so, – so here's, here's why I'm asking that and why I think it's really important is that – so we're having this conversation about you know, what the left's reaction. Well, actually, we're going to dunk on some libs more about their meltdown. But we're talking about like what's the right's reaction? How does this fit into like party politics in the United States? But we've talked about depoliticization on this show before. Like, by and, by and large, I think at least half of the people in this country have some sort of opinion on January 6th. They have, like, maybe a strong opinion about Trump and Biden or whatever, but are n- absolutely not invested in this whatsoever. Yeah. Well. Much like most things when it comes to and, our and they're and they're and they're also democracy. a question mark when you when you ask people who are not who are not specifically like uh, likely voters or whatever what they even mean by political violence mm. you know what what the conditions are under which they believe that political violence should be had or what that political violence would be you know in, in search of yeah. I, I think that there are probably a lot of them are like more right wing than left wing but you know. The, the the polling often like seems to I think leave out like vast swaths of people who are like much more of a mystery than if you were to watch MSNBC or Fox. Well, they listed some reasons that may or may not be illuminating here. Um, quote, those who said that violent actions could be merited cited reasons such as the government violating or taking away people's rights or freedoms. That could be literally anything. Uh, yes. A potential military takeover. A bit more specific. Or yeah. the collapse of democracy, which once again is vague. Yeah, it's all pretty vague. <laughs> I mean, or what rights are you meeting. talking about? You talk. I mean, I'm not saying that like people actually believe this, but like trampled on your rights could be like right to have a union. <laughs> I wish there were like <laughs> yeah. like a large percent of Americans who are ready to go to the go to the mats over not being able to unionize. It's never maybe that. in the future. It's, no, I mean maybe <laughs> in the past at some point in time, but no, like now what it means is like your right to have minoritarian rule by a small small business tyrant white chud minority um, well yeah that's what they're really after like that's if they were honest about their politics that's what they would say but the j like the people storming the capitol what they were saying was the election was stolen and we have to stop the steal we have to stop this process of turning power over to someone who didn't win the election. So they believed, or at least they said uh, to themselves and to the media that they were defending democracy. And so um, although I agree that like what they really want, especially the QAnon people, is this uh, dictatorship um, of the, the Trump movement and especially the way it speaks to the middle class, um, they think they're defending democracy. And you see the same tendency from the the Democrats and the liberals as well, in the sense that, uh, you know, they react to Trump saying, let's, we have to find a pretext to impeach him. Um, there is even, there were people talking about, like, can we get rid of him using the that amendment that says if the president's crazy, we can get rid of him? Can we do a military coup if he tries to do something crazy? Can we pack the court with uh, 10 judges? These are all... Um, ways of saying that they want there to be a a liberal dictatorship against the Republicans because they threaten democracy. So both sides have come to the same conclusion that um, the reason the government doesn't work is because of these power grabs by the other side. And what we need is some kind of dictatorship to restore order. So I just wish they would be more 
honest about what they want. Just be explicit right. about it. Yeah. And, and let's not forget, too, and like this is going to piss off, I guess, any remaining liberals that might listen to our show. But like um, from 2016 to, to 2020, the main reason for the liberals calling for a coup against the president was, of course, a conspiracy theory. And then people turn around and they say, oh, stop the steal is based on a conspiracy theory. You just had Russiagate for four years in order to delegitimate the, pre- the standing president of the United States. Like both sides. Right. And this is why the context is so important and why the partisan pissing match is so useless and frustrating is, is that if you look at this, if you step back and you abstract away from it, you're looking at these tendencies in American politics and society to move in certain directions towards political violence, towards conspiracism, uh, towards a sort of like reification of the of the American system that doesn't rely on the, the use of policy or like the ability to craft better lives for people, but instead means like our, our particular um, – our particular basket of ideology or our particular politicians, not even ideology, our particular politicians, uh, you know, being favored over others. And and this just, you know, knee jerk faith in institutions that is, uh, I mean, given the current facts, the current material facts of uh, capitalism being on fire, I guess it's a, uh, not the craziest choice they could have made, but like, I'm thinking about how the Biden administration is now, uh, they said they they told us that they're doing this. They're pivoting from this build back better agenda to provide material benefit in people's lives to a uh, voting rights focused agenda, yeah. which is to say, you know what? At least we got our institutions, guys. Um, and I wanted to for now. I, yeah, right. Uh, I wanted to quote a little bit from Biden's speech. Because uh, I think there might be. Oh, his big Gen 6 speech. Yeah, there might be something interesting there. Maybe, maybe not. Um, Let's have a look. But he said, and I quote, uh, don't worry, I'm not going to read the whole speech. Um, he you said, have to read it in Biden uh, voice listen, if you Listen, do. Jack, <laughs> make no mistake about it. We're living at an inflection point in history, both at home and abroad. We're engaged anew in a struggle between democracy and autocracy, between the aspirations of the many and the greed of the few, between the people's right of self-determination and self-seeking autocrat. I think this might not be a perfect transla- uh, transcription, either that or, you know, he's having Biden brain farts. Um, from China to Russia and beyond, they're betting that democracy's days are numbered. They've actually told me democracy is too slow, too bogged down by division to succeed in today's rapidly changing, complicated world. I don't know who they is supposed to be here. Maybe China and Russia, uh, who are, you know, like exactly the same project you see going on in China and Russia. Uh, Never mind the fact that China's uh, COVID zero policy is actually pretty good and has led to way 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 fewer deaths of chinese workers than american workers in the recent past um, but is, i digress I disagree that it is good but we'll, okay not, well not different topic f- fair complicated topic for another day so he goes on he says and they're betting they're betting america will become more like them and less like us they're betting america is a place for the autocrat the dictator the strong man i do not believe that that is not who we are that is not who we have ever been. You well, know, why don't you talk to some colonial subjects? They may disagree. Uh, he says, and that is not who we should ever, ever be. This is not the land of kings or dictators or autocrats. And then he goes directly to this. We're a nation of laws and order. 
not chaos of peace, not violence. So he's sort of counterposing law and order against dictatorship, which to me, those are the same. Uh, but let's finish it out. Here in America, the people rule through the ballot and their will prevails. So let's remember together, we're one nation under God, indivisible, that today, tomorrow, and forever at our best, we are the United States of America. We are definitely a country and that country is definitely called the United States. <laughs> At least for now, yeah. Like, damn. Well, the uh, that's that's some very interesting rhetoric. I feel like because <clears throat> you see this like the Democrats. So the Republicans seem to have like as a grand unifying theory, like some sort of anti-communism, even though there's no communists anymore. Um, but the, the, the liberals have as their sort of grand unifying theory, this sort of like return to a Cold War mentality where you've got like uh, the forces of like the dark forces of autocracy abroad uniting with those within. And um, that's what's supposed to unite people. It's like this this very bizarre, like weird uh, figurative goal of like, um, I don't know what, getting back to the 1990s. Well, right? yeah, I mean, it's also emphasizing that the government exists based on the consent of the governed. But uh, I'm going to say based on how few people vote or give a shit that this is not what we would call enthusiastic consent. Well, the 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 the, the voting system, our electoral system works exactly as planned. It's like basically <clears throat> a democracy for the petty bourgeoisie hiding a dictatorship of the bourgeoisie, of the haute bourgeoisie. <laughs> like it's, it's been that way for a very, very, very long time. There's like we were talking about before, like a small spectrum of people, something like maybe 40, yeah, a minority of people who like pay attention, have some sort of party uh, attachment, who like read the news and think that actually policies from the left or the right can do something to change their lives. Then there's like that vast, like 55, 60% of people um, who like, you know, you don't need property owning, um, you know, specifications in the constitution anymore to keep those people from not voting. They don't vote and they don't participate because they know it's not going to do anything. Yeah, it's awesome. Cause they've also, seen that even amongst people who do vote um, like the, the pop, like a support for Congress is very, very low. Um, like, oh God. Uh, you know, the presidents tend to have some popularity because they they're sort of the figurehead for their party and people have this emotional attachment to their team. Um, but uh, the actual government of the United States, especially the federal government, is very, very unpopular. And, um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, appealing to the institution of of democracy uh, is, is definitely what the Democrats ought to do. And I think, you know, even law and order is not like, I, I disagree that law and order is synonymous with dictatorship. Liberal, liberal democracy has always sought to uh, uh, achieve law and order. Um, yeah, I guess that's why we put scare quotes around liberal democracy, especially the democracy part. Well, I mean, I think this is a liberal democracy. You know, I, I don't think that there's like yeah. an ideal form well, of it that we can achieve through through progress well i think a lot of times leftists will put scare quotes around democracy uh, in liberal democracy as, to counterpose it to like worker democracy because uh, uh we know not that. that uh political rights are pretty inseparable from economic ones and if we don't have economic democracy we can't call it a democracy really well 
Andy, were you done? Well, or yes. One more I thing respond? I'd say is that you said that like the yeah. Cold War is this is this reference point for the liberals today, and I think there's. I, I see that for sure, um, but I think another, maybe more popular reference point is the civil rights struggle, and you see that with uh, the way uh, Stacey Abrams had sort of delivered Georgia um, to Biden, um, and the way uh, these uh, the, this rate the gerrymandering is often very racist, and that's animated a lot of people uh, into correctly pointing out the way this minoritarian rule strategy of the Republicans is like a reiteration of Jim Crow. Um, so I, I think uh, th- there's that aspect to it, and that's that's a, a legitimate reason why people might want to um, expand the Democratic franchise. Uh, however, uh, I also, you know, in the civil rights era, you, you also had the the promise of the, the great society, which is something like Build Back Better, that Biden has no, um, has shown no ability to actually pass so uh, maybe if you had Build Back Better pass along with this voting rights bill, you would have had some real vitality restored to the Democratic Party. You would have had some, yeah. uh, uh, some momentum, but they're unable to do either. So I don't really know what, why they're telling people to ideologically reattach themselves to the, the liberal Democratic franchise. They've, they've got nothing to offer. Well, yeah, they got nothing else. As Trump said in his statement... This political theater is all just a distraction for the fact Biden has completely and totally failed. Yeah. Which, you know what? <laughs> it's true. When he's right, he's right. It's also, he's right, he's right. It's also ironic. Uh, we talk about the Cold War. We talked about the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, a, a main reason, a main driver, as I understand it, for why there were any concessions or victories in the Civil Rights Movement to begin with were because of the Cold War, because we had the USSR putting outside pressure on us to show that we are a more progressive and democratic and, you know, evolved society than them. And that pressure no longer exists. I think that was a huge part of it. Uh, I think losing the Cold War in this country did a lot of things. It it kind of took away a lot of the uh, impetus for the Democrats to hold up anything on the left. It gave the right wing... Uh, like the John the John Birch right wing that had been around since like the the New Deal era, um, they um, had always turned their eyes or they had tried to turn everyone's eyes inwards towards uh, Eisenhower being like a closet communist or whatever. But nobody really bought it. But after the Soviet Union falls, the real enemy outside disappears as they saw it, and so the only place they could look for like their their antimony was the fucking uh, the left in this country. So it's like a Cold War turn inwards. And, um, you know, it's like the whole thing is so backwards looking is the, is the crazy thing for me. Like the Republican Party is like so. So the Republican Party looks to like 1776, right? Uh, 1788. It's like a, they look towards an 18th century political formation. And then the ideology of them is a 19th century ideological formation of classical liberalism, which they marry with a 20th century, 20th century sort of cultural reaction against progressivism and modernism, but all within a 21st century political economy. Like the thing that's really cracking right now and, and why it wasn't just the Cold War that kept, you know, social spending going and, and new movements going in the United States is because objectively the United States has far less to play around with now, far less surplus. And our fucking society is like in, in all in, by every indicator is fraying 
at the seams in a way that it really hasn't since maybe the the antebellum period of the United States. This is all a reflection of like a complete and utter breakdown of, you know, not just the American dream, but really like the the social structure of this country, not just since COVID, but really for the last 12, 13 years. It's all reflecting itself in the politics. Are you saying, Sean, that fascism is just capitalism? Is okay? <laughs> I mean, we could are. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think that what uh, a MAGA person really believes is is like fascist per se. It's not Nazism or whatever. But I also don't think that you need to be flying a swastika in order to have a dangerous reactionary ideology. And I think that many of those people can do that just as well with the American flag, because we sure as hell have enough blood on that fucking thing and enough reaction on that thing in order to uh, to, to do a lot of harm. Yeah. Um... But I don't think that they're bad. I don't think that they're necessarily a lot of them are, but they're not necessarily evil people. One of those ways in which we've kind of frayed at the seams is that there's been this sort of bifurcation since the 1970s for the last 50 years or so of like a cosmopolitan, metropolitan, uh, transnational, sort of like um, urban uh, political economy on the one hand, and then you have like the rural and exurban and suburban political economy of like extractive industry and, and national manufacturing and uh, cultural markers like going to church and, and, and whatever. These two Americas have been splitting off more and more for the last 50 years. And so like these political disputes that are happening, they're, they're happening on January 6th or happening in Milwaukee are really a reflection of like this 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 vast gulf that separates, you know, Americans Americans from one another. Yeah. Well, don't get us wrong though. A lot of them probably are bad, racist pieces of shit. It's not mutually exclusive. But it's like which came first? And I think you're saying that a lot of it is overdetermined. A lot of it's overdetermined and I I think that it a lot of them are evil per- people and a lot of them are racist, but it doesn't analytically it only gets you so far to look at how evil and how racist they are as like an explanation for like the the whole of their ideology yeah, because like, there's a real like I was saying like that you've got this like 19th and 20th century edifice of like political thought of small of small government and small business or whatever that even if you eliminated like any racism from it would still be a dangerous reactionary ideology because you can't have like small holding petty bourgeois yeoman democracy in the 21st century. You can't have it. If you're going to do that, it's going to take more than simply, you know, uh, reviving the garb of 1776 and bringing America back to the time when it was pure and good. Uh, It's going to take an actual social revolution, which none of these right wing people really want, but they're going to be forced to confront if they ever get to the point where they have to radically remold society in the way that they want it. Right. I'm just going to go straight to this historical precedent because I think it's somewhat relevant because a lot of the things we're talking about here were talked about already by our boy Karl Marx way Mm. back in the day when he wrote a thing called the 18th Brumaire of Louis Napoleon from which the famous quote is taken, history repeats itself, First time, wait, no, I'm fucking that up. Uh, different quote, different quote. Men, uh, something about how men, they make history. Men make history, but not under conditions yeah, of their own choosing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's that one. But I'm going to say also that history repeats itself. First time is tragedy. Second time is farce. Because it feels a little bit like we're doing the 18th Brumaire of Donald Trump right about now. So oh, yeah. 
Uh, let us go back in time, if you will follow me there, to a little self-coup that happened uh, at the end of the Second French Republic. And it kicked off the Second French Empire, and it was led, of course, by Napoleon III. Well, his, his first name was Louis Bonaparte, right? Am I getting that right? Yeah. He was the mm. nephew of Napoleon, the OG, uh, and then eventually he's like, you know what? I'm just going to fucking call myself Napoleon III. Fuck it. Um, this happened in 1851. He was the president, much like our boy Donnie. Uh, he was coming to the end of his term and he was term limited. So he's going to be going out of power. And then he's like, you know what? No, no, no. I'm going to do a little autogop so that I can stay mm. in power. Uh, he, did a, he did a little self-coup and it worked. And led directly to the end of the the end of the republic for then, and uh, back to sort of a monarchist. Well, first it was sort of like a constitutional monarchy. Then he's like, no, 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 let's uh, let's get rid of the national assembly. They shouldn't have that much power. So there's some parallels I want to spotlight. Uh, it took place in a time of economic crisis. 1840s France was very turbulent, uh, and it claimed to be about defending democracy. Because one thing that this guy wanted to do was reinstate universal male suffrage after uh, the ruling faction, the party of order. Uh, they, were, they were doing liberal democracy, but they were doing a republic. But they're like, we need to tamp down a little bit on popular power after the June Day's uprising. Uh, so they rolled it back. And he's like, well, I want to bring back democracy. He was doing like a little bit of a right wing populism, tribune of the people kind of thing. But of course, in the end, it only led to more autocracy. Um, and it was driven. Interestingly, he didn't do this by himself. He had an alliance with small land holding peasantry, which there's not a direct one to one thing going on. But it sounds a lot like rural small business owners to me. It rhymes. Yeah. Properties, small property owners. Yeah. yeah. So the party of order initially supported Napoleon III in becoming president because they thought he'd be really easy to push around. But he wound up imposing his will on everybody and taking power from them. Uh, and this would later be held up by Marx himself and other Marxists as an example of why this sort of atomized rural peasantry is not going to do a proletarian revolution on their own and they need to be led by the urban proletariat for it to have a real uh, class struggle content to it, in part because they're so atomized, in part because of a lot of things. Uh, what, do, what do we think about this? Oh, oh, and, okay, this might be an anti-parallel, uh, but Napoleon III had majoritarian support. That is why he wanted to bring back uh, universal male suffrage. And he won the post-coup referendum by a fucking landslide, which I guess is, uh, is different than Trump, right? Because he did not win the popular vote in either 2016 or 2020. And came close, though. Yeah, I mean, sure he, he won the electoral college. So that was more than anyone expected him to do. Uh, what do you think, Andy? Uh, about the parallel to the self-coup of Louis Napoleon? Yeah. Well, I think Trump could have done it if, you know, because Louis Napoleon had uh, really a, a huge base. Um, like, he had the, the support of finance capital, uh, the landed aristocracy, the industrial bourgeoisie, the lumpen proletariat, the army, right? So if Trump had 
spent his four years um, doing populist stuff, winning over large sections of the population, uh, I think he could have been a, a Louis Napoleon type figure. Um, but he's, uh, he's like a, you know, he doesn't actually believe in anything. So he was only able to, to motivate this, like, uh, this one class fraction who kind of bought into his, his bullshit. Um, and like the, the military was basically on, on the ready to, to take him out if it, if it went any farther. Um, but you know, the, really, I think the point Marx was making, um, with uh, 18th Brumaire is that, uh, you know, this begins with a revolution in Paris in 1848 in which the proletariat were really the the most active force, the most violent, direct force. And um, they they started the whole thing and it led to this chain of events um, in which there became, uh, there was this coup against democracy um, and the people who were opposing the coup now said, hey, where's the proletariat? Why aren't people um, taking up the barricades again against this coup? Mm-hmm. And uh, the reason is that the everything that had happened over those three years was about um, minimizing the power of the proletariat, including the creation of social democracy. Um, so this is where Marx comes to this conclusion that the proletariat stands alone. Um, there, this is this is the uh, the class that is really uh, has the potential of changing things. Um, so the the various other factions can seize power in a coup, but really nothing is going to uh, uh, effectively change. Um, There's no, there was no um, social revolutionary aspect to it per se. Like that's. I, I, I mentioned like a, a petty bourgeois social revolution earlier, and that would be really, really scary and frightening to see that happen. Like what the like the small property owning, like exurban, um, you know, small business owner or sort of labor aristocrats, uh, what what their design in order to like remake society would look like would not be very good. Yeah. It would not be very good for that they other slice no of people who again they don't even know. But they don't have a vision. That's the point. What kind of people should die or go to prison, basically? Right. I mean, that is scary in and of itself. Um, But they they failed. I mean, they didn't even try that hard. So well, and that's and then what exactly what we're talking about is why the liberal meltdown um, was so crazy to watch was because you know there wasn't really any attempt at like there wasn't there was never any ability for there being an actual revolution right there was never an instance of like of insurrection that was going to come and like sweep the democrats out of office violently uh what it was was like this backwards looking revolt uh in favor of like one particular political personage that people uh enjoy there was i don't know Well, okay. What do we think about the role of uh, anti-fascists in all this? You know, being that we are the uh, the heads of Antifa, I feel like we should have an opinion. Uh, our friend, friend of the show, Brendan O'Connor, had an interesting thread uh, where one of the ideas he threw out was that the sort of demobilization and co-optation of the George Floyd Rebellion by... Uh, centrist liberals 
was what allowed the fascists to kind of retake the streets leading up to January 6th, right? Apparently there were some very large unopposed MAGA rallies in the interim where they kind of got too big for their britches. Uh, do you think an anti-fascist presence would have helped put a lid on this? Or is that too close to uh, defending the bourgeois state to be anything of substance? Well, I think he makes a really good point, especially in terms of like what we were talking about with 18th Brumaire, that the George Floyd uprising was this proletarian, something like an insurrection, like this uprising nationwide that was extremely, you know, started by the proletariat, um, extremely popular, um, and then, yeah, there was a, a series of factors contained it and, like, reinterpreted it into the Democratic Party. I don't think it was entirely the Democrats maneuvering that, uh, that ended, I think, it kind of burnt out on its own volition. But I think, so where he's correct is that that thing ending led to a situation where um, Trump could assert it, the, the Trump movement could assert itself in the streets. And leading up to the, the election, you did see that in terms of, like, basically these caravans of Trump supporters in their SUVs driving into urban areas and just, you know, yelling at people and saying, fuck your feelings, yeah, which I is remember. like such a beautiful mobilization of the, like that's what the Trump movement really is, is these fucking <laughs> yeah. at like suburban SUV driving assholes who just, like, their politics <laughs> is dicks. I'm an asshole. I don't care about you. I don't yeah. like you. I'm going to make you feel bad. And that's all they care about. Well, like, well, so, what, like those what? Trump 2020 flags I saw on the boats. I saw the right. boaters for Trump guys that said Trump 2020. No bullshit. So then there, there was that. And then after the election, there were like Proud Boy rallies in D.C. And Antifa did uh, counter that a little bit. And it, it seemed like mostly they got beat up. Um, you know, I, it, it wasn't it was like way more Proud Boys than Antifa. But even if there was more Antifa, like the Proud Boys were just wa- marching around empty D.C. chanting, fuck Antifa, looking for Antifa to fight. Right. Like, I'm, even if you win that fight, you know, like, that that's kind of what they want. You're giving them what they want. So I think Antifa should, yeah. a- at their best, and in terms of countering, like, street-level fascists, not give them what they want. So, But in, in general, like, where it doesn't add up to me is that the George Floyd uprising was not Antifa. It was not the left. It was not... Um, it was not about fighting Trump. What was so politically mature about the uprising is it did not care about the election. For a little while, we forgot <laughs> that there was this bullshit election, and we cared more about yeah. the actual conditions of our life. So I, I, basically, I think the left and Antifa is like way behind. And like all the talk about defund and abolition and the Democrat co-optation that came after uh, is really irrelevant to what the uprising was about. And in, in Marxist terms, and, and like, what? yeah, the the people who started that uprising, who were the real belligerents of it, they uh, once again stand alone. And like, why didn't they come out to defend the Capitol on J six? Well, why would they? And 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 in terms of like trying to identify some sort of class position within January sixth, I mean, the explicit justification that a lot of them gave was that well, you saw what happened last summer. You saw all the small shops that were burnt down. You know, you saw like um, people's livelihoods taken away. uh, Their revulsion and like the reason why they it was okay to do January sixth was explicitly because George Floyd uprising. 
in some way, shape, or form, was targeting private property in many in many cases, or private par- property was targeted, right. whether through like smashy smashy, or whether actually taking commodities. And if the this this particular constellation of the right wing believes in anything, it's in the sanctity of private property. They believe in private property, just like the Rachel Maddow shitlibs of the world believe in like the hallowed halls of American democracy. Yeah, yeah I think it's also relevant to note. That uh, the J6 was really a cross-class coalition, uh, probably led by the petty bourgeoisie, if I had to say, who was like the, the plurality of it. But there were, you know, there were broke people in that coalition. There were uh, ex-military people. Um, it was largely a white one. Uh, but it's like, yeah, this is not a, not completely, not completely. Though. But this is why white identity politics are bad. I mean, among other reasons, right? Because you're uh, getting proletarians on the same side as bosses, whereas the uh, the George Floyd uprising was much more of a multiracial proletarian uh, character, as far as anyone could tell. Yeah, and instead of like a um, a humping of the flag, it was more of like a negation, just like a negation of every. I think we should move on to a bonus. I think let's take take this behind a, the paywall for an old fashioned uh, one, two, three Antifada crew uh, bonus up. What do you say? I'm down. Yeah, one thing I want to say before right, we do that do though is um, that yeah, yeah, I think it was cross class, and there were working class people there, uh, but I I think the vanguard really was petty bourgeois people uh but more importantly a petty bourgeois worldview and and their concerns and that's not only a right-wing position you also have a lot of petty bourgeois thought and representation in what we understand as the left the big difference though is they really are uh explicitly against not only what they see as the elites but also the people below them. They are really horrified by proletarian self-activity. So uh, as far as the, if we can say that the left is also motivated motivated by similar um, class desires, the best we could do is try to be understanding that, you know, the proletariat is actually uh, the vanguard that should be followed, not the other way around. Hell yeah. Well, how do we do that? What is to be done? (laughs) And like, how do we give that more explicit anti-capitalist content as opposed to the implicit content that it already has well maybe we should do this in the bonus but i think um i don't know the left might be uh, how should i put this lightly the the concept of a broad tent left i think has been utterly and completely destroyed internally in the united states yeah not just in the last 10 years or so but in the last 100 years or so and i think that the only real honest and reasonable position to have if you believe in, um, you know, worker self-activity, you believe in a better world, you believe in a world where we're going to get through this whole climate change shit together, which is going to mean like rap- like rapidly uh, winding down the fossil fuel industry through revolutionary means. You kind of have to be a communist at this point, yeah. like, like just attaching yourself to some broader sort of like idea of the left, like, oh, we'll unify with the Democrats sometimes and then we'll stand aside at other times when an insurrection comes. No, I just don't think that like the left as a political formation really has much salience anymore because the, the, the left 
by and large, is exactly what Andy said. It's it's got uh, petty bourgeois interests because it's that fraction of the petty bourgeoisie that's able to dominate politics uh, on behalf of the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. Yeah. Well. Don't worry. There's plenty of room left for infighting if we only consider communists to be our comrades. Because <laughs> there are lots of different kinds of communists, and some of them believe you need to engage with the state, and other people don't. So, you know, we're the adults in the room. We can talk amongst ourselves. But uh, Talk amongst yourselves. Part of, part of the point of this podcast and all the media shit that I do is to avoid getting a real job. No, it's to <laughs> like try to normalize the idea of communism in a similar way to how socialism was sort of normalized and then, um, you know, irreparably watered down in the past few years. Hopefully that part doesn't happen. But uh, Oh, it will. Uh, it'll be a constant battle in order to keep it meaning something. Yeah, I but, mean, the uh, CPUSA endorsed like John Kerry or some shit, right? Yeah. So, you know, just because... Just because someone calls themselves a communist doesn't mean that they're doing communist things, but it is a good place to start. <laughs>